All right, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Docs Outside the Box. I'm your host, Dr. Nee. I'm joined by Dr. Renee. Oh, that was it? That was it. That's all, all right. you're getting. All right. Well, cool. You know, <laughs> I like it like that. Less than two seconds, you know, straight to the point. Listen, less than two seconds is not good all the time. Just letting you know. Uh, okay. <laughs> is your mic okay? Yeah, it's about to fall yeah. over, but I think it's fine now. <laughs> yeah, I think your mic is a li- okay. You're good yeah. there. Mm-hmm. All right, everyone. Listen, this is another episode. Um, this is going to be an episode where we are talking about, well, look, this show is about money, medicine, as well as pop culture. And I think over the last several weeks, pop culture has been like flashing like crazy in our lives. We don't live in a vacuum and we've just kind of done our best to kind of side swipe it and not really speak about it. And, you know, I haven't brought it up as a topic of concern. We're talking about gun violence. We're talking about obviously what happened last week with Roe versus Wade. Um, away. Wait. Wade. Road ver- Roe versus <laughs> Wade. My, my bad. Sorry about that, guys. Um, and obviously um, some other issues that have been going out there. Um, most importantly, um, just as important as the other ones, is that stat article that we wanted to talk about. That's mm-hmm. that article that came out about two weeks now talking about how black residents statistically are being dismissed from residency programs mm-hmm. more so than their counterparts. So there's a lot to talk about. We haven't talked about it. Let's jump right into it. Um, hopefully, people who are watching us on Instagram, listen, we appreciate you. We know it's late. If you got any questions, shout us out. We're watching right here. So if you have any questions, shoot us out. Let us know. And we'll be sure to try to answer them and, and interact with y'all. Listen, everybody who listens to us on a podcast, I'm telling you right now, you are missing out on a dope experience on YouTube. You can follow us on YouTube. Everybody who's watching us on YouTube, slowly but surely, our, in- our subscriber count is increasing. Yeah. As you can see, we got an Adinkra symbol here. I got this all the way from Ghana when I was over at a mission trip. And it costs more to get this framed <laughs> than, the actual... than to actually buy it. Right. I might as well have just pay the, the artist you know, the same amount. He could have done more of the money than giving it to Michaels. <laughs> that charged me a grip to get this frame. But either way, yeah. that's an improvement to our to our studio. Slowly but surely, we're improving. So listen, everybody who's listening, people who follow us on, on Instagram, you guys are getting a really great experience. If you're listening on podcasts and we understand. Um, but listen, think about watching us on YouTube. Yeah. Let us know what you think. Yeah. So. All right. You ready to do this? I'm jealous. I've stalled. I've stalled. I keep stalling. Yeah. (laughs) Jump into it. There's a lot to talk about. All right. So listen. um, So for people who don't know, I grew up in Irvington, New Jersey, as well as Lefrak City. Um, Never forgot where I came from. I know where you grew up, not too far from where I grew up. Mm -hmm. And although now that we are physicians, we are in a different socioeconomic status for me Yo, those roots are really hard to, you know, get rid of. I've never forgotten where I came from. And to an extent, I vote like I still live in those communities. Mm-hmm. Me too. So um, my parents still live there. I have family that still lives in neighborhoods like that. And I think that oftentimes you'll see people who say they vote their interests, mm-hmm. right? And their interests may be money-related. That's the, most people, they vote right. money-related money related. and so mm-hmm. forth. Um, but I vote knowing that the decisions that I make or the decisions that are made with my vote are going to affect more often my family that's not in the same socioeconomic status than me, which mm-hmm. is the majority of my family. Yeah. So whenever I vote, I always vote with them in mind. 
and yeah. go from there. I don't know if you want to add anything like that. No, I mean, I think, you know, I, I feel the exact same way. You know, I just have never forgotten, you know, where I've come from. Um, I vote the exact same way. I just remember, you know, growing up in East New York, Brooklyn, you know, that life isn't always easy, you know, and there are people who still live in the community in which I was raised and life continues not to be easy for them, um, even a generation later or two generations later. And I think, you know, you are, I feel like we have to think about the most vulnerable populations and be able to think about, you know, our responsibility as a society um, with regards to vulnerability. And when you take care of people who are most vulnerable, I think it says a lot, you know, about your society, about the humanity of your society. So yeah, I always you, keep yeah, that in can, mind. You can judge a society based off of how it treats people who have the least. Right. And, uh, you know, look, you know, for me as a trauma surgeon, th- at least with Roe versus Wade, it doesn't come up much at all. Um, I take care of pregnant patients, but these are patients mainly who are in their third trimesters or maybe in their second trimester, they get into a car accident. The ER doesn't want to clear them unless they get our blessing. So they make them a trauma alert. We evaluate them and then go from there. Mm-hmm. I think I only had one patient ever who was, I believe, in her second trimester. Mm-hmm. I-, I think either her first or second trimester, um, she was in a bad car accident and she was the the dis- the heart was just like at, I, I, whatever it was, it was like at like 10 or 20. Mm-hmm. She was pregnant. The fetal and, heart rate. Yeah, mm-hmm. the fetal heart rate was mm-hmm. just horrible. And um, it was very interesting with the politics of the hospital. Mm-hmm. At that hospital, they could not do an abortion. Mm-hmm. So that hospital, so that patient, we had to ship them out two hours yeah. to go to another facility for them to get the you know, evaluation and then possibly the eventual abortion mm-hmm. um, at that point. And that was related to trauma. Right. Um, but that's as close as I've ever gotten to this situation. I know that you um, deal with this itch, this situation a little bit more than I do, way mm-hmm. more than I do. Um, and then you definitely your, your opinions on this, um, way more than my opinion also. Um, but let's start off. Last week, Supreme Court made a decision that basically undermined the decision that was made back in 1970 with Roe versus Wade. Mm-hmm. And um, in essence, there is no federal protection whatsoever for abortion in, you know, in the country. In the United States. It's right. really up to the states to determine if they're going to protect that right. Um, a lot of states have already started as soon as that decision was made. A lot of mm-hmm. states already had laws trigger enacted, laws. these trigger laws in vac- enacted that basically said, okay, well, you know, past six weeks, you know, that's it. Nobody can get an abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, and other states are in the process of enacting that. And then other states like maybe or California and New York, they're in the process of strengthening mm-hmm. their protection Protections. of abortion. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of stuff that's going on. It's a smorgasbord of stuff. Um, so... I can talk about the Turnaway study, which talks about a lot of different things. But when we just start off with your thoughts in general, I think you know, I think that overturning Roe versus Wade is going to have just way more um, impact than I think most people realize. I don't think most people understand what we do um, in my profession of OBGYN with regards to 
you know, taking care of pregnant women in all the possible scenarios that potentially could be construed or misconstrued um, as just elective terminations or abortions. Um, You know, I think when people think about abortion, they oftentimes think of people, you know, women who may have gotten pregnant and just, eh, I don't want the pregnancy anymore, and therefore... I think people think about the teenager, right? Right, That teenager who's uh, low income and, you know, made a a reckless decision and is trying to do this to better their lives, quote-unquote, and stuff like that. Right, and that, yeah, that's their thought, right? Like, oh, you were being reckless, you were being irresponsible, and now you don't want to have this baby, and therefore, you know, now, you know, you want to have an abortion, and we're not going to allow that. Um, And that, that... First of all, there, there are so many, <laughs> so many different um, ways that I can uh, uh, even uh, approach that particular point of view. Um, but that's their thought process. But, um, you know, abortion looks a lot differently, right? Or the ending of a pregnancy looks a lot differently than what most people understand. And it is a very complicated thing. And so when you don't understand all of the possible ways that a pregnancy can terminate um, or all the possible reasons that a pregnancy can terminate, then you end up in a mess of trouble. Um, And even people, even people who support this overturn will find themselves in situations where they're going to be like, wait a minute, I didn't understand that this is what was going on. Um, and so that that to me is is what is is actually going to be very interesting is that you're going to have supporters of this finding themselves in these situations right. and then wanting, you know, a certain level of care that they actually never even voted for, that they actually voted against. So let's let's talk about one of those situations. Can you think of one? And can you think of one that? Oh, yeah. Up- I mean, I could think of a whole, you know, a whole bunch. First all of right. all, for the sake of that podcast, let's do one. Absolutely. I all mean, right. let's talk about ectopic pregnancies. Okay. Right? Ectopic pregnancies are common enough that you will find that many, many supporters of this overturn are going to find themselves in a situation where they're going to have ectopic pregnancies and they are not going to be able to be treated in a timely fashion um, or in an appropriate fashion. Um, I don't know if people remember, but either last year or a couple of years ago, there was a lawmaker who basically said, yeah, you know, if a woman has an ectopic pregnancy, then don't terminate the pregnancy, reimplant the pregnancy from the fallopian <laughs> tube into the uterus. Where are they doing that at? Yeah, so clearly he doesn't understand. But that's what I'm yeah. saying, right? So you have people who That's don't- the part that drives me nuts the most is like there's like this interpretation Mm-hmm. making legislation, and you don't even understand the science. Clearly, you don't understand right. the science. You don't but, understand the yeah. human body, yet you are making laws that es- essentially dictate how you're supposed to care for the human body. Um, you know, that that's one of the stupidest things I've ever heard is to reimplant an ectopic pregnancy. It, it literally doesn't make any sense. Um, so, we're you know, we're going to find that patients are going to be either at death's door or they're going to just die outright because, well, she couldn't get treated for her for her ectopic pregnancy because technically it's considered an abortion. 
You know, we're going to find issues with IVF. You and I talk about IVF all the time because, you know, we did IVF for two and a half years, but you're going to find problems with IVF. So if you have leftover embryos, and you know, after you've completed, you know, all of the, the cycles that you wanted in order to make your family, the question is, what happens to those embryos? You can't just destroy them anymore. So you actually have facilities, IVF facilities, who are now scrambling to move their embryos to different states so that those embryos are protected, you know, for, for their patient's sake. And I'm just like— I didn't even think about that, actually. Oh, yeah. There, I mean, there's so many implications. You have, you know, septic abortions where, you know, you have an intrauterine infection, the, the fetus is infected, the, you know, the mother obviously is at risk for sepsis, and, you know, the fetus is under a viable age, right, if they were to deliver. And it's like, okay, well, if you can't deliver this woman and the baby is not going to survive anyway, what are we doing? Why are we keeping her pregnant? Because this is not a survivable diagnosis without treatment. And so, you know, we're going to find ourselves in a mess of trouble um, on, on, you know, on the healthcare side because now you have doctors scrambling trying to figure out what to do when they are in when they are in states that have these trigger laws and you have people who are like you know doctors who are like well I, I don't know what to do yeah you literally just you have to get your lawyer on the phone yeah you just legislated a medical right. decision that is primarily made by a woman and made with a woman and her doctor right and you just put a law person in between there who doesn't understand anything exactly. about medicine yeah. Exactly. I mean, imagine imagine a trauma coming in and, you know, someone basically you have to get on the phone to be like, uh, can I treat this patient in the way that I see fit? Like, imagine that. So, you know, I, again, like I said, it'll be very interesting. These things don't happen in a bubble. Um, and there are going to be a lot of people who are pro turnover. Um, of Roe v. Wade, who are going to find themselves in this situation. And so, you know, I just think that it's going to make for very interesting um, patient interactions and just, you know, data is going to be falling out of of the sky because I, I just, I can't see that this is going to improve any outcomes in the United States. So it's funny that you mentioned bubble because that's kind of how I was looking at this, right? Because some people may be like, well, Doc's outside the box. What are you doing talking about abortion? Like, this is not really a medical-related show. When when we do talk about, we are a fusion of money, medicine, and pop culture. Mm -hmm. Whatever's going on in culture, we need to be talking about that. Mainly because, actually, there are plenty of studies, particularly there's one study that they use in a lot of cases right now called the Turnaway Study that talks about, you know, what the physical, mental, as well as Mm -hmm. financial consequences of denying a woman an abortion, what that really does to her, what that does to her family Family. life, what that does Mm -hmm. to her future earning potential. So that's where, you know, we want to weigh in, or at least I was doing the research and I was like, oh, I didn't even know about this, but this study came out recently. So it's called the Turnaway Study. And it was put out by the University of California, San Francisco. The lead researcher was Diana Foster. And for over a decade, this study group followed about a little bit under 1,000 women. And these women sought abortion over 21 states, right? They sought an abortion over 21 states. 
and the outcomes of denial of abortions compared to the physical as well as the mental and financial consequences, they were pitting those two together. So if you got denied an abortion, they did the long-term effects of what the physical, mental, as well as financial consequences are. So the premise findings, the big findings that they found out that I think we all knew Mm-hmm. as medical professionals, but I think it's really important mm-hmm. for the lay public to understand is receiving an abortion does not harm the health and well-being of women. Right. 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 Doesn't ha- doesn't hurt them. No. Right. And then the second premise, which is just as big, is women denied access to an abortion creates economic hardship and insecurity, which lasts for years. Yeah. Which is where we step in. Yeah. So let's get into the economic hardships. So if turned away... These women were turned away and then they went on to give birth. They experienced an increase in household poverty mm-hmm. lasting at least four years relative to those who received an abortion. Yep. They're more likely to not have enough money to cover basic living expenses like food, housing, and transportation. It lowered a woman's credit score. Mm-hmm. It increased the amount of debt. It increased the amount of bankruptcies and evictions. So this is huge. Oh, Yeah. This is huge. So when some when a woman is looking for an abortion, it's usually not they just want to have an abortion. Right. There are some economic, usually there's something economic behind it. There's some type of consequence financially mm-hmm. that's going on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I know we're specifically talking about abortion, but this also translates to, you know, even things like birth control and sterilization. So... You know, speaking of studies, years ago, there was a study called the Crest Study. And apparently that study um, is one that is used very much, you know, across our profession to kind of support the denial of sterilization um, of, of, you know, of women who are requesting sterilization Um, especially under the age of 30, right? So if you are under 30 um, and you are requesting a sterilization procedure, it is not uncommon for an OBGYN to deny you because, well, you're under 30 and the Crest study, you know, supports that. I think the Crest study stated, I think, something like, don't quote me because I don't have it in front of me, but I believe it has something like, you know, 20% um, of women under 30 had an increased risk of of regret um, after they had the procedure. And so for me, I'm like, oh, then that sounds to me like 80% of them did not. Right? <laughs> so, but, you know. This story, this study says 95% did not. Right. <laughs> so exactly. Yeah. 95% right? of so the we, patients, we, we, 95% of the women did not have any right. Right, regret. So, you know. We have to really think about what the implications are because the implications for sterilization are very, you know, it's very similar when you deny a woman sterilization and she goes on to have another pregnancy and then is denied an abortion. I mean, you know, for me, it just baffles my mind why it is that we insist on making laws that control what people do with their bodies, you know, Um, but you know, this would not be the first time um, in this country that, you know, there are laws dictating that other people can do whatever they want to other people's bodies. So it's not surprising that this was overturned. Um, 
So, I mean, I have a lot of opinions about this. Um, the the implications are just just tragic. Yeah. Um, let's let's move on to more of the hardships. So, yeah, the relationship hardships. Now, if a woman is denied an abortion, this study showed that physical violence from the man who was involved in the pregnancy decreased for women who received abortions. Mm-hmm. So, if the woman got an abortion, physical violence was reported less, but not for women who were denied abortions and gave birth. Mm-hmm. So if the woman was forced or was denied abortion and kept the child, that physical violence continued. Right. By five years, women who were denied abortions were more likely to be raising children alone without family members or male partners compared to women who received an abortion. Mm-hmm. So there's the... Um, physical violence aspect and then there's the isolation isolation aspect for people who are having children who um i guess at this point we say it's unwanted yeah um, unwanted unplanned pregnancy unplanned pregnancy Mm -hmm. if we jump into the financial well-being of the child or the financial well-being of the children who may already be alive during this point Mm -hmm. right so if the woman has more than one child right Mm -hmm. or a child or more children the women of the ch- the children of the women, excuse me, already have shown worse child development when their mother is denied an abortion. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Um, children are more likely to live below federal poverty level, and there's poor maternal bonding that's also reported mm-hmm. with that child that's born. Yeah. In terms of serious health problems, uh, more life threatening complications are reported: preeclampsia, mm-hmm. postpartum hemorrhage. Yeah. Um, and then you throw on top of that, there's a whole bunch of other studies that show that the access to abortion increased the likelihood of graduating college by 72%. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say that again. Access to abortion increased the likelihood of a woman graduating college by 72%. And the ability to delay motherhood by one year. One year due to access to legal abortion increased a woman's wage by 11% on average, mm-hmm. right? So once again, with Docs Outside the Box, we're talking about money, medicine, and pop culture. So we are merging this This is this literally like, <laughs> right? this is literally the, the fusion that we talk about, right. right? Yeah. Now, you also throw on top of that, right? So we already said the likelihood of you graduating college, 72%. If you had access, right? Mm -hmm. Women who have access to that. And then the ability to delay motherhood by just one year increases the wages by 11%, which is huge, right? right? 40% of women don't, in the United States, 40% of women do not qualify for unpaid maternity leave Mm -hmm. under FMLA. Say that again. 40% of women do not qualify for unpaid maternity leave under FMLA. Mm -hmm. And then 88% of women don't have access to any type of paid leave. Mm -hmm. Then you throw on top of that, moms earn 75 cents for every dollar paid to fathers, pops. Mm -hmm. And then that number is exacerbated for women of color. Right. Right. So for me, it's like, okay, you are just making this situation worse. And obviously in this situation, the key thing is, is, is not taking away abortion. It's fixing the -hmm. public policies that protect children, the public policies that protect pregnant women, fixing the safety nets. So I'm going to put these, these, uh, this study, I'm going to put 
also, um, there's something called the Safety and Quality of Abortion Care in the United States. It's not a study by me. It's a study by the National Academy Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. And it talks about this study, or it talks about the care of abortion over the last almost 50 years. So well, you go and I check mean, it out there. You know, you said, you said something that, you know, really um, perked me up, and that is, you know— that they're making it worse. And the question is, worse for whom? Mm-hmm. Right? There is, for me, obviously, an ulterior motive um, for this. Right? Like, there, there is a rhyme and a reason um, for this. You know, I'm not of the faction that agrees with the overturn of Roe v. Wade. So I can't, you know, really say what that rhyme or reason is. Um But for that faction, they don't believe that they are making it worse. And actually, all of the things that you read here, I think actually is probably what they're looking for, right? So really, when we talk about worse, it's like, well, worse for whom, you know? So worse for, you know, us, it seems to be worse for us because we believe that, you know, women should not have to have these take these financial hits should not have to take these you know these social hits um so yeah we believe that this is worse but for other people reading this they think this is fine yeah you know like yeah well you know if you have a pregnancy that's unplanned or unwanted you know this that's what you get it's your it's your punishment right for for just having that pregnancy but again it's not that Every single pregnancy that is that is to be terminated is unplanned or unwanted. That is not, you know, the the end all be all of it of it all. You actually have terminations of very wanted pregnancies, right? We talked a bit again about IVF. You know, IVF has an increased risk of ectopic pregnancy. Yeah, you could just go on Twitter right now and you'll right? see so many doctors listing all the issues that occur. Um, the, you know, all the complications that occur while you're pregnant. Like exactly. what happens if you develop, you know, cancer? Right. Let's exactly. say you develop cancer in your first trimester. Exactly. What happens? What then? do you do? Right. Exactly. What do you do then? Right. And if let's say you need chemotherapy and you need radiation exactly. and then you need surgery, like right. what happens what then? What happens then? Do you forego treatment or mm-hmm. do you put yourself more at risk and maybe even a baby at risk? Like exactly. what happens then? Like Right. And because my thing is this. If you are doing, let's take the IVF again. If you are doing IVF, you obviously are not just planning this pregnancy. You paying for it. You absolutely want this pregnancy. Yeah. Now you get an ectopic. So what do you want us, like, what do you want that woman to do? You want her to keep this pregnancy and and suffer all of these potential consequences? Like, it doesn't even make sense. It doesn't even make sense. And so these are the things that we see in my profession um, that, you know, really is just kind of like at this point, many of us are just kind of throwing up our hands in the in the air like, OK, well, I don't even know what to do with at this point. And many OBGYNs are really thinking about fleeing, you know, those um, those, states. those states that have these laws that really are not going to protect women. The problem with that, though is that many of many of the OBGYNs who are of the faction of, you know, being pro the overturn of Roe v. Wade, they don't even refer 
patients out, right? It's not even like, well, I don't do abortion, but let me send you to somebody who does. Many of them don't even want to participate whatsoever in that decision. And so they will say, no, I'm not even going to refer you to anyone I know who would be able to care for you in the way that you desire. This is a problem, right? So now you have a dearth of care, you know, and while OBGYNs might be able to get up and leave. Patients can't. can't. Right. Whole communities cannot get up and leave. Like this is not going to be, you know. There's already a physician shortage in a lot of the Midwestern states. Exactly. The Southern states that these things are enacted. Exactly. It's possible that this may make it worse. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. And so I think that there are unintended consequences that are going to be seen as well. Consequences that, you know, for entire communities that, you know, all of a sudden things are going to, ideals may shift a little bit just kind of based on, hmm, I didn't see this coming. (laughs) You know, I didn't know that this was going to fall at our doorsteps. And all of a sudden, you know, there, there may be some shifts in ideals, but that remains to be seen. So listen, everyone, um, interested in what you got to say about this, you can text us at one 230 2860 Once again, you can text us at 833-230-2860. Alfred, hook it up on the bottom. Once again, that's 833-230-2860. Um, I don't think you can beat this. You know, this, this stuff is literally changing by the minute Mm -hmm. right every day something new is is changing but we thought that we should bring in the aspect of where we grew up what our you know what our socioeconomic uh experience was where we are right now and kind of you know what we you know what we think about this situation and what the economic implications are Mm -hmm. right because i think that there are people who are in medical school who have to deal with this, yeah. right? There are people who are in other professional school schooling who have to deal with possibly needing to get an abortion. Mm-hmm. Or they may be in residency or they may be in attending themselves mm-hmm. um, or whatever it may be. And they have to make a decision like this. So this is something that doesn't just affect people of a, of a certain socioeconomic right. class that right. you can't touch, you can't feel, and to many aspects you can't see. Mm-hmm. It may affect you also. And I appreciate you, Renee, for sharing uh, that aspect and you know there's certain things that sh- that I can't speak to right. um, that you can definitely speak to and definitely as a provider you can speak to that and as a woman you can speak to that also so yeah. shall we move on it will be difficult but yes <laughs> well the next one is, is just as tough which I is I know that's what I was thinking about like mm, it'll be tough to move on because I know what's coming up next right so which is gun violence so we're going to keep this one short so guy, I think gun violence is pretty straightforward we already know what's going on for the first time ever. Uh, you know, children, uh, teenage uh, children um, are the number one cause of death is uh, gun violence, mm-hmm. um, which is crazy. Yeah. Um, so I'm just going to keep it. it used to be accidents in the home. Yeah. So it, yeah. it's it's nuts. Um, we saw what happened in Uvalde. Um, they're still trying to work that out. It's just right now we're at a point where, you know, these assault rep- weapons are able to take out so many people. Um, from my experience um, growing up, once again, like my experience with guns, my experience with uh, weapons like this, um, I have a very, uh, what's the word I can say? Tenuous. Yeah. Like <laughs> I just, I stay away. And I know that during my training in the Midwest, as well as in the South, people have different 
um, mm-hmm. thought processes with guns. They have a different relationship on guns. I respect that. As a matter of fact, some attendings have taken me out when I was in Georgia, mm-hmm. and I've held an AR-15. Mm-hmm. Right? I've held an AR-15, and I shot it, and it's mm-hmm. very exhilarating. Um, not in a well for me it wasn't in a good way but mm-hmm. I can see how exhilarating it could be to be able to like pop off shots just that quickly mm-hmm. um, I just didn't have a really I didn't find it very positive right. and I think for me it's almost like you see what this weapon can do and you see it just I don't know I just didn't feel it wasn't the most positive experience I'll leave it to you like that Yeah. and I think as someone who's a trauma surgeon who deals with people who get shot um, I think one of the worst experiences I saw was like a teenage kid who was shot you know, going to a teenage club. I, mm-hmm. I didn't even know that that existed. But yeah, yeah, teenage clubs. Yeah, they were yeah. Shot, he was shot leaving a teenage club. And if you see the the destruction of what it did to, you know, to like a face, mm-hmm. you know, it's just those are the type of things that never leave you. And like the father coming in and seeing their child and it's just like, wow, like that never leaves you. Yeah. So for me, guns, I just, I don't really have a very positive experience on it. I don't use that to... Um, I don't I don't make any judgments on other people who have a positive experience with guns to an extent, right? Mm-hmm. It's the assault rep weapons that I'm just like, all right, we gotta we gotta get a clamp on this, right? Yeah. And um so I was listening to Dr. Megan Ranney on Vox. Um so she did a really good podcast with them where they talked about a gun policy game changer. I'm gonna put that link in the show notes. Um basically it talks about how now there is some funding for some studies that are going on that are actually gonna study the effects of gun violence. Mm. Um it's not making uh it's not making a decision if as if guns are bad or not. It's just talking about right, if the there's impact. a gun if there's a gun here, this is the impact. Mm-hmm. If this happens, then this. That's all it does. And then from there people can make decisions based off of that. So right. Right. um I'm also gonna list an article that in there that says guns do more than kill. Um so it's more than just I think we talked about this about three or four years ago. Mm. I had Dr. Lori Punch as well as Dr. Brian Williams who came mm. on the show and they were talking about how, you know, gun violence is more than just what happens to the person who's shot. It's the family that gets affected. Right. It's actually the entire community mm-hmm. that gets co- affected. Obviously, the support system that gets affected. Right. Um, so this article and by Vox. Even the medical profession gets absolutely. affected. Absolutely. So this, this I put in here, guns do more than kill. You guys can catch that in the show notes. Um, let's jump into speaking up while in residency. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. Because I think we can actually have a good talk about this. Yeah. Speaking up in residency, um, my thoughts are, is it worth it to speak up when there is so much to lose? Thoughts? Ooh, you know. You've been through four years of medical school. You possibly may be the first person going to medical school. mm -hmm. By the time you get to residency, you probably have over $200,000 in student loan debt. And, yeah. you know, I'm just leaving that as the backdrop. So I just want to see what you're yeah. going to say. No, for me, I don't think it's a cut and dry decision. You know, I think it's something that you really have to, you have to weigh. Um, you have to weigh your future versus what it is you're speaking up about. Um, I know in, in the case of this particular resident, um, it was, you know, she was speaking up about an assault, pretty much almost a, a physical sexual assault of a of a patient um, who was in the operating room. Um, and she alleged that 
her attending essentially assaulted the patient. Yeah. Um, and so it's been all over Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, gosh, like that, that's a really tough thing because now, how do you prove that? Right. How do you prove it? Number one, number two, what is the blowback on you? Right. When you're really supposed to be protected by whistleblower, you know, whistleblower policies and things like that, you know. And so the question becomes, well, maybe you're not protected. Maybe you are protected by whistleblower policy, um, but maybe they'll find another way to get at you. You know, maybe maybe you weren't that great of a resident to begin with, even though you got all the accolades, even though you got, you know, all of the the awards and the scholarships and the and everything else. But all of a sudden... Or you just, you know, never got in trouble. You just was a regular, run-of-the-mill, oh, yeah. average resident, which yeah. I think the majority of people are, right? And, mm-hmm. Like, I'm an average resident. I'm trying to make it through. So, yeah. but why am I standing out? Right. And so, I, I think that that's a, that's a tough thing. Now, I know you talked about in the beginning that black residents tend to be dismissed from their residencies Oh, you jumping into that already. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So we, yeah. So there was an article that came out two weeks ago by Stat. Uh, Stat put out this article called Black Doctors Forced Out of Training Programs mm-hmm. at Far Higher Rates Than White Residents. Um, it yeah, found. I think it was by Usha Lee um, McFarley. Yeah. Is her name. So basically, it just, I mean, the it just laid it out. It was like, well, um, black residents are only 5% of residents in the entire country mm-hmm. but make up 20% of dismissals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um and this was actually in an article that that number mm-hmm. came from the ACGME. <laughs> so it's it's not even the 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 writer. Right. Like this was put out by the ACGME so it's like hmm. Okay. Yeah. And nobody sees a problem with this. Right. But I'm going to I'm going to And this number came out in 2015. I I'm So yeah. I'm I'm going to take it a step further and be like so those are the people who actually made it to residency. Yeah. Let's take let's take it a step back, right? Because you see the same trend in medical school. Disproportionately, black students, black medical students are dismissed from medical from medical school, even though they make up such a small percentage of the medical student body. Right. And so now you have, you know, only 5% of residents you know, that they make up only 5% of residents. I'm like, what about the ones that didn't even make it to that 5%? Yeah, I was I was really interested in the story that they told. So if you didn't read this article, they told a story of a resident who was in ENT. Mm. And she was at the top of her class. This, this resident was phenomenal in medical school. Mm-hmm. And then she got into residency and then, you know, it was just... What appeared to be a stumble after stumble after stumble after stumble. And then eventually she was kind of like, quote unquote, kind of forced out. Mm-hmm. Right. But if you look at her, when they talk about her reviews or when they talk about people like anonymous sources and so forth, basically they were just like, she didn't stand out any more than anybody else. So it's mm-hmm. like, well, why was she kind of, why was she targeted and so forth? Right. She developed, you know, some issues. So here's the thing too also is, you know, we talk about the consequences mm-hmm. that occur financially, um, but she kind of was very open about the mental health issues that occurred yeah. also with having to shift to a different program. Yeah. Um, or just going through this program because you feel like, almost like you're being gaslit. Yeah. Right? Like, what, what am I doing? Like, right. I, maybe I'll, how about this? I'll wake up earlier. 
I'll, I'll do all the things. I'll do all the things that I need to do. I'll make myself a martyr to make sure that I get here on time. Um, not only am I here on time, excuse me, I'm be here b- earlier than anybody else. I'm gonna see more patients than anybody. I'm gonna leave later. I'm not gonna take vacation. I'm gonna work twice as hard to get half right. as much. Uh, and you just mm-hmm. end up, you know, the story or this article kept kind of highlighting the same thing over and over again. And I was kind of like, oh yeah, like. I kind of remember hearing people talk about this over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, so I went to a HBCU residency pro- residency program. I was at Morehouse. Right. So um, to be honest with you, I didn't experience this. I did experience a little bit of, you know, I got to get there earlier. I got to work harder, you know, mainly because I thought, you know, from an osteopathic standpoint, mm-hmm. there was that issue. I was the first osteopathic medicine uh, medical student uh, accepted into the program. So I was like, I'm going to work harder. I'm going to do all these different things. And just that right there right. was Enough like pressure. A, a lot of pressure <laughs> that nobody else was putting on me. Yeah. I put that pressure on myself. Yeah. But you feel like, okay, I don't want to let anybody down. But imagine if there was someone who was like knocking at your door like, hey, you made this mistake. Yep. You made this mistake. Because she was saying, they said like her first year or her first two years when there was one program director there, nobody bothered her. Mm-hmm. As soon as a pro- another program director came here, it's like, well, you don't tr- you don't close your charts fast enough. Mm-hmm. You're not doing this. You're not doing that. And you're just like, God damn, like what am I? I can't get ahead here. Right, right. And then when you look at what your counterparts are doing, you're probably not doing anything differently than what they're doing, you know? And, you know, it just, so my first year of residency, you know, I've talked about this on the show before, but my first year of residency, I felt very, very similarly, like, you know, to the point where I actually quit. Now, I will tell you, I was the third, the third resident in my class to quit. I was the only one of those three that actually ended up staying. Um, The other two residents who actually were not even minority, well, Technically, one was. She was Puerto Rican. The other one was not a minority. Um, But those two actually left. And just goes to show you that there's enough malignancy to go around (laughs) in a a residency program (laughs) to begin with. Right? There's enough malignancy to go around. We laughing, but it's the truth. But it's true, right? There's enough malignancy to go around in a residency program to begin with. But when you have, you know, when you have people who are being gaslit, um, and you you try to figure out. So let's like, let's talk about some of those examples. Why? So what what kind of things were you going through? Because not everybody heard that previous episode. So what kind of things were you going through? So well, I will tell you one one thing in particular was an attending who literally was on my back for I don't know what reason. He would come in to our sign out. He would berate me for no literally for no apparent reason. You know, quick story. One time, I'm literally signing out. Um, or actually, I'm signing back in. I'm on the day team. I'm signing back in after I signed out um, the the day before. I, I had told the night team, you need to check the PTT on this patient that we started heparin on. The night team signs back out to me. They never check the PTT. And the patient has heparin dripping, you know, through her veins. So I'm like, you didn't check the PTT? Nope. I'm like, all right. So this attending comes in. And mind you, he's an MFM attending, and this patient that we're talking about is not even on his service. But he comes in, and he hears, like, half of the story. And then from the half of the story that he hears, he assumes, I didn't check the PTT. And I'm like, 
So he literally just comes in and starts berating me. Berating me. Oh, you this, you that, you so irresponsible. You, you never check anything. You're not smart. You I just, honestly, inside, I was literally stabbing him. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, inside my head, I was literally stabbing him because I was like, this man has enraged me to no end. But being the professional that I am, I just sat there and looked at him like, if you only knew how stupid you look in front of everybody here because you don't know what you're talking about. So I let him go and I let him look stupid. And then I called my chief of GYN and basically told her to have him stay away from me for the next 24 hours. Otherwise, yeah, she was going to fire me that day. And those are the exact words I used. Mm -hmm. I said, you're going to fire me today because if he comes to me one more time, I, I can't guarantee what I'm going to do to him. So, you know, things like that. Like, why? You know, what's the reason? And so, you know, when you say, well, should you speak up? Right. It's very hard because sometimes you have a target on your back and you have no clue Well, a lot why. of people don't have, like, that hotline that you had. Right. Thankfully. Right. Like, that's one thing. Thankfully, that, yeah, I did. Yeah, you had that hotline that you can get through. And, you know, we're qualifying everything. Like I said, I went to an HBCU. Right. You went to I a did program. Not. You didn't go to one, so you had a different experience. And then mm -hmm. the other thing, you know, which is different from this article is like, well, well, it's actually kind of similar. It's like, well, how do you know when they're coming at you is because— you're black. You don't know. Right. You have no right. clue. So then right. you start doubting yourself and you start doing all of these different mental math, mental calculations. I'm getting here early. I'm doing this. And it's just like, yeah, like it's, it's just not going to work out. Right. Because mm -hmm. I just I have it. I have a hard time believing that only five percent mm -hmm. of the residents are that bad mm -hmm. that they make up 20 percent of the dismissals. Mm -hmm. Wait. So this is an issue because we talked about this before. It's yeah. like, well. Is this really a is this really a resident program problem, mm -mm. or is this like a no. system problem? This is a systemic problem. So, right? like, no, but I mean, like, is it like a resident? Like, what kind of students are you, or what kind of residents are you choosing? Right? Exactly. Right? Is this an admission problem, or exactly. is this a, like what are we talking about? Do you have the support system? Let's talk. Let's talk about that. So let me just tell you guys a little bit of history in nineteen in the nineteen forties. Okay, in the 1940s. So think about the makeup of medicine and medical schools in the 1940s. Okay, and who was going to medical school at that time. Um, so in the 1940s, about 50% of medical students were dismissed from medical school. How many? 50%. They had okay. a 50% attrition rate, mm -hmm. okay, of people who did not complete, okay, who were literally dismissed from school. Now, I want you to think about the demographics of the 1940s classes all across America, okay, in medical schools all across America, okay? Let, let's start there. So, they figured out that we don't have a problem, you know, with our educational system. We have a problem with our admissions system, right? right? We have a problem with admissions, and so they went through painstakingly, you know, like very rigorous ways to be able to, you know, figure out who should get into medical school. And what they did originally was that they had the first year medical students take a test. Hmm. They had them take a test. But then they figured out, wait, if we give them the test before they get into medical school, that actually might tell us, who would be better candidates for our medical school class? And the MCAT was born. 
Okay? And so my question at this point is, is something wrong with the students that you are accepting? Or is something wrong with your process? Right? Because, again, like you said, you can't tell me 5% of residents are black, but 20% of them Okay. I'm not believing it. Right. I'm not believing it. Yeah. I, exactly. I'm not believing it. So something especially is wrong when, with especially your Especially when process. they come as tight as this one. Yeah. Like she was at the top of her class. Yeah. Like, wait, what? Yeah. Something's wrong with your product. There is something that you are doing wrong. Something that you are doing wrong. But at this point, right, medical institutions are not saying, hey, why don't we look at our processes and figure out what it is that we're doing, right? Because we have gone through all the lanes to to make sure that our admissions process mm. is tight. Now, what about the process of getting people through their residency programs, through medical school? Maybe that's the problem now. And I, I think... Yeah. I think the thing that I really focus on is like when they leave, like thank goodness this woman is able to find another program. Mm -hmm. Obviously, she's not going to be going into ENT. But I just think about like, how are you going to pay off that student loan debt now? Right? Oh, yeah. Like what happens with the salary that you're missing out on? Yeah. Right? Like she had a child and I think her husband was, I think it's was, also... was family medicine. Yeah. So thank goodness for that. But, you know, there are folks who are on their own who are trying to figure this out. Mm -hmm. And whether it's, you know, you're being targeted because you spoke up um, or, you know, let's be honest, there's some residents who just need to step up. They ain't they ain't shit. You know, like they need to step up, right? Mm -hmm. Let's be honest about that. Um, but five percent, yeah. you know, five percent of residents coming up to twenty percent of the dismissal. I'm not following. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not buying that. There's something that's. I agree with you that it sounds to be a process issue. Yeah. Or a support issue that's going on. Right. Um. So for me, like I, you know, with my my standardized tests, you know, my first two year or my first year, I struggled with that mainly because I didn't have a system. But like Morehouse gave me like the resources support and the support and mm -hmm. then the next year just like that it clicked it clicked and i went into the 80th percentile on my app site score mm -hmm. because they this is how you study for a test here's how you do the questions like i literally my first year got a textbook and was just thumbing through the pages mm -hmm. right and you know nobody knew that that's what the residents were doing until mm -hmm. someone was like yeah that's what we're doing they're like wait no 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 we got to get you guys some review books. We got to do, you know, weekly mm -hmm. reviews. We got to go through all of these different things where we're making you practice and prepare for the test. Right. And all of our scores went up. And they came to a point where, you remember Dr. McCoy? Mm -hmm. Dr. McCoy called University of Miami and was like, hey, he's going to be taking his test, you know. And I don't know what happened, but all I know is I passed my test. Mm -hmm. I passed my test. This is the... Um, the, when you were in fellowship. Yeah, this is well, this is the the this is not a test in fellowship, but this is a test that I took while I was in fellowship. Gotcha. It's the test for um the American Board of Surgery. Mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm. The general surgery certifying examination. Right. That's the first part. I passed that the first time. The big concern that the program had, Morehouse had, was well, we want to make sure that you pass it the first time. We right. do not want you to take this multiple times. Yeah. And I passed it. But I got to give them props because throughout the entire five years, they gave me resources, they gave me space, they mm -hmm. gave me encouragement, you know, to say, hey, we believe in you. We yeah. think that you're going to do this. Here's the resources. Now go ahead and go get them. Yeah. You know? But so, you know what? I, can't I don't know if everybody has that. No. I, I don't think that everybody does. And definitely I didn't have that level of support um, in my residency program. But I will tell you that I can't understand 
residency programs that don't have a problem with the fact that you are dismissing people at this level of education. Yeah, that Like, part. it really says something like, wait, so what are y'all doing? Like, you literally, you as an entire program can't identify people because that's their that's their excuse, right? Well, you know, this person is not up to par. It's like, oh, so you as an entire program of very smart people can't identify people who should be strong enough to go through this program. Like, y'all can't figure this out. Like, for me, I'm like, it's an insult to yourself as a program to even have some level of attrition because, I'm sorry, you've been established for how long? You have plenty of smart people who are sitting around the room, and those smart people can't put their heads together to figure out this person isn't a good resident? No. Like, yeah. th- that That for me says something more about the program than it does this about article, the resident. This article went viral because there was uh, a lot of people who are not physicians who I'm in group chats with who mm-hmm. sent me this article. Your mom yeah. got this article. Yep. And they were just like, yo, what's the deal? Like, we didn't know this was going on. Yeah. I mean, like, but, it, you know, this isn't just medicine. Right. right. I mean, and when we saw the article, we were like, we're like oh, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <We> just, <laughs> it, just so happen, it just so happens that there's an article out on this. But this is yeah. something that we've heard through multiple stories while we were residents. And yeah. obviously, once we became attendings and we're hearing about residents who are behind us who are going through these issues. Exactly. They got to change programs or they got to, you know, go to a different state or, yep. you know, they got to repeat here. And you're just like, hmm, yep. wh- wh- why is this happening? Like, this person was cold on right. x y and z what's going on and stuff and you know it's almost like this article kind of shed light on something that you know has been like a well-known secret but has been kind of just put in the dark yeah for such a long time yeah. and i'm glad this article came out i hope there's going to be more um i hope there's going to be more attention paid to this that's right. my thoughts on that so yeah. any any final thoughts on this whatsoever <sighs> you know there's just so much going on right now there's so much going on right now and i know like you know, on the show, we haven't really addressed it. Um, if anybody knows anything about us, we have very strong opinions on a lot of different things. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that we want to say. Yeah, there's a lot of things that <laughs> we, we want to say. But we have to be responsible of how we say it and stuff. Well, so. yeah, we have to be responsible yeah. with, with how we say it. But we also, you know, we also have, we also know that there are other reasons that people tune into the show. And so we want to stay true to that as well. So it's hard to just juggle all of that information um, but I'm glad that we were able to sit down and, you know, provide at least our viewpoints. Um, you know, our audience may but or may I, but not But I think we got to be us. real. I think we have to be real with this and, re- mm-hmm. and let people know that we don't live in a vacuum. That's why yeah. I started off like this, right? Like, you, we can't just have a show about personal finance right. and not talk about if issues. Things that are going on that will affect personal, personal finance. Personal finance, right? Right. right? And as doctors... You know, there is a certain level of understanding about abortion that we understand that Mm -hmm. a lot of people may not know. There's a certain level of even the economic hardship Mm -hmm. that we know that a lot of people may not know. So Mm -hmm. it's really incumbent on us to not just have a show. Like, that's what we we grew up with in the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s. People just, like, they would have, whether it's a TV show or they'd be on TV or they have a radio show, whatever it may be. And just like, y'all just not going to talk about X, Y, and Z? No, they wouldn't talk about it. Like, and I just always, in my mind, always thought, like, I didn't want to be that person who... You know the the world could be falling outside, but we're still talking about. So listen, man, so, you're still, so your let's student talk about loan, your emergency fund. Let's talk about your emergency fund and your student loan. They're like, man, damn that, man, man. <laughs> the world is on fire. 
<laughs> you know? So yeah. this this was our I mean it's gonna be more of this anyway. Yeah. There's gonna be more of this that we would like to infuse what we think about this stuff because, you know, we appreciate everybody listening to the show. We appreciate everybody valuing our opinions. Mm-hmm. But our opinions are born through a certain experience. A certain we grew up in a certain way, yeah, and that is part of how we decide to deci- decide to come out with docs outside the box. Like mm-hmm. this is the reason why we present it this way um, is because of how we grew up. Yeah, you know. So outside of that, man, listen, we appreciate everybody who's listening to this show. Whether you agree with us or disagree with us, let us know. Text us at one eight three three two three zero two eight six zero or. You know, the multiple ways that you can reach out on us. We just prefer if you send us a text. Also, don't forget to fill out the Docs Outside the Box survey with InCrowd. Make sure you click on that. It's in the show notes. And that way you can also let us know what you like about the show, what you don't like about the show. It really helps us to understand how we're bringing content to you, what works for you, what doesn't work for you. And we go from there. Mm-hmm. We will catch you guys on the next episode. Thank you again for watching us on YouTube. Yay, and we, Instagram. And Instagram. We Thanks, are getting, everybody. We are getting our uh, visual, you know, up and up. We're working on that. And then everybody who listens to us on the podcast, listen, we appreciate y'all. And we're going to catch you all on the next one, all right? Peace. Peace. Hey guys, thanks again for listening as well as supporting Docs Outside the Box. Listen, this show is produced by Darko Media Group and the dope audio experience is edited by the one, the only, Christian Parry, also known as your podcast pal. Links to him in the show notes. Listen, this is Dr. Nee, the Doc Outside the Box. I'll catch you on the next one. Peace.